in the book of Acts. Would you open up your Bibles? Probably to two locations. I do want you to find Psalm 22 because we'll be there. This is going to be a bit of a quick review, which will be in Acts 4. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 33. All right, the title for our, this is our 12th lesson in um, the book of Acts, and it is entitled First Church Response to Persecution. Is that not appropriate for our day? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for once again bringing us all together to study your word, to get to know you better through a look at your son and his continuing work in this world through his church. We ask that we would be able to put into practice those things that you teach us today by your spirit as we do continue this study of the early church from the book of Acts. We pray that we, each of us, might be bold for Jesus. Make us to be open and to be teachable. And not that we only store biblical knowledge in our heads, but that we put it into practice. Not just to be hearers of the word, but doers in our lives. Because that is true godly wisdom, when we put knowledge into practice. We ask that you would bless now our time together and may your spirit have liberty to do his work in each one of us. And most of all, we ask that Jesus would be lifted up for we do pray in his blessed name. Amen. Well, the book of Acts is the record of the resurrected Christ's work through by his spirit through his church, obeying his commission. And what is our commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. The Greek physician Luke in Acts was inspired to record for our benefit some of the major events and sermons of the first generation of believers. The book of Acts only covers about 30 to 38 years, just the first generation. This letter, which is what it really was, was written to a man named, anybody remember? Theophilus, very good, Theophilus. And his name in Greek just happens to mean lover of God. So really the letter is for all of us, if you're a lover of God. Um, And it was intended not only to be historical, this is a historical record of that first generation, that on-fire early church, but also in a suggestive way, not a literal way, but it was also intended to give future generations of the church a pattern of what it ought to be like. You know, aside from the mighty apostolic miracles, we don't have the mighty apostolic miracles anymore. We have something better. We have the mighty apostolic message. We have the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They had miracles. I'll tell you what's better. It is better to have the message. It's better to have the New Testament than to have the miracles. But um, So it's, it's kind of prophetic in a way. It's, it's not only to give us a pattern of what the church should be like, but also it, um, it tells us what to expect what to expect as we carry forth the message of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to set men free from their bondage to sin and to death. Now, as we studied, we saw that there was kind of a pattern developing in the church, the life of the church. It began unfolding in the first three chapters. And it consisted of, first of all, the first thing in the pattern was that there would be a mighty display of divine power. In chapter 1, that was the Lord's ascension. That was a pretty mighty display of divine power when he just, you know, ascended up into the clouds. Then in chapter 2, what was the mighty miracle? It was, it occurred on Pentecost. And uh, that was the mighty miracle when all the disciples, the 120 in the upper room, could start speaking in all kinds of unknown um, you know, languages that they never knew before so that they could pass the word on about Jesus to everybody that was gathered around them. They could speak languages and dialects even. Then the third chapter, what was the mighty miracle? Do you remember? This is where we let off. The, the lame man, the man who had set, uh, sat at the uh, beautiful gate or laid there at the beautiful gate for probably decades, and he was healed by Peter and John. All right, so first, the first part of the pattern is a mighty display of divine power, which was God designed in order to then create, secondly, an opportunity for the preaching of the gospel. Because after each miracle, people gathered together for an explanation of how, what, you know, what happened here. And then that gave the apostles, and so far the only spokesman has been Peter, 
um, but he would give a sermon. And then the third part of the pattern, after he presented the sermon, what happened? There was spiritual fruit. There was always fruit from his sermons. People placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourth, we would have some kind of a description of the daily life of the early church family and the discipling of all the new believers. And this pattern continued smoothly through those first three chapters. But with the opening of chapter 4, something interrupted that pattern. Something new is entering into the pattern of early church life. And uh, what was it? What was that new something? Exactly. Persecution. For the first time, persecution enters into the pattern of church life. Now, to review where we are, Peter was preaching to a large crowd gathered at Solomon's porch. The man, the lame man, had been healed over at the beautiful gate, but Peter, John, and him, they moved over to Solomon's porch, and a great crowd followed them. This crowd that followed them there was filled with wonder and amazement. This is in Acts 3.10, if you want to look at these verses as we uh, review real quickly. This crowd was anxious to hear what he, what Peter, with John at his side, had to say about a third man who was standing there with them. And that was the unusual part, that this man was standing. You see, everybody in Jerusalem easily recognized this man. He was practically a fixture in Jerusalem. He had begged for alms at the prominent position of the beautiful gate of the temple for decades, because we were told that he was over 40 years old. So he could have been lying there for 40 years. Maybe even as a young boy, his parents took him there to beg for alms. And everybody, to go into the temple, you had to go through the beautiful gate. So somebody there, you know, you would recognize the man. And he had never, ever walked a step in his entire life, because we were told he was born lame. But there he was. You know, they watched him leaping. Remember when Peter reached down, he leaped up. And they, had, they watched him leaping and jumping and dancing and running and hopping and skipping all the way from the beautiful gate over to Solomon's porch. And now here he is standing with Peter and John, and he's got them in a bear hug. He's hugging them. He's just so happy, and he's praising God. So the people are greatly wondering at the miracle. And who do they look at earnestly? They look at Peter and John for the explanation. So you see how God used a miracle in order to allow them to present the gospel. It was a God-given opportunity to preach about Jesus Christ, and Peter took full advantage of the situation. He began by telling the people, don't look at Peter, and me and John. Don't look at us. You know, it has absolutely nothing to do with our power has nothing to do with our holiness. This miracle was the work of Jesus, God's son, the very one that they had, along with their rulers, delivered up to Pontius Pilate. He said he was the holy one, the holy one. What is that a claim to? Deity. And he called him the just one. And he goes on, this is in verses 12 to 15, telling, you know, he's the one, the holy one, the just one, that you not only delivered to Pilate, but you denied and you killed him, having chosen a murderer over him. Who had they chosen instead of Jesus to be released? Barabbas. Now, you've got to admit, that's pretty strong, isn't it? That's pretty strong. But then he eases up a little bit. And in compassionate understanding, which every preacher should have. It's good if a preacher has some compassion when he's saying, thus saith the Lord. And then he says, uh, like Peter did, let's see, where is it? He says something about, you know, I, I, here, verse 17, and now, brethren, I wot, such a weird word, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your ruler. So he's, he's understanding that they were ignorant of the severity of what they had done. I mean, after all, he had been pretty ignorant about things too, hadn't he? He didn't understand that the Christ had to die. So he tells these people how the Lord's death, Christ's death, their long-awaited Messiah's death, was actually, it had actually been in God's plan to redeem men from the very beginning. He explains that to them, you know, admitting basically we didn't see it either. When he first told us he had to die, we said, no, Lord, may it never be. 
But that did not mean that these people were not responsible before God, and especially their religious rulers. They were responsible for, before God for having killed, look at verse 15, the prince of life. They killed the prince of life. And we talked about how the word prince in Greek is archegos. Archegos. I can't get my tongue rolling today. But it's like from archaeology. It means that he was the originator of life. He's the author of life. You killed the author of life. But the good news, Peter goes on and says that they could repent. This is in verse 19. You can repent and you can be converted and you can have your sins blotted out forever. That's good news, isn't it? But even more good news, he said that um, they were witnesses of the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. We saw it with our own eyes, and he was received into heaven. Of course he rose from the death. Do you know that it is absolutely impossible for death to hold the prince of life? Death can't hold the originator, the author of life, right? Hallelujah. And he says, of course, you know, he, he rose from the dead. He ascended, heaven received him, and he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father until, he told him this in verses 19 to 21, until the times of the restitution of all things, which he also called the times of refreshing. When will that be, ladies? This will be the millennial kingdom, the Lord's second coming, when he comes, and everything will be refreshed. Everything will be restored. The earth, finally will be out from under the curse, and he will sit as king of kings and lord of lords, and there will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, and then will be ushered into the new heaven and the new earth. Well, the disruption of the sermon came after Peter said, verse 26, these words. He said, unto you first, that means to the Jew first, okay, unto you Jewish people first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning every one of you from his iniquities. Now, of course, you know, they're in the temple. Solomon's porch is in the temple. All this has been going on in the temple precinct. So who do you think is all around hearing what Peter has said? Yes, there's Pharisees and Sadducees and priests, chief priests. And this teaching of a resurrected Jesus was becoming a real thorn in the flesh to these Jewish religious leaders. Their theology was being threatened. Um, and many people were coming to believe that they had actually, you know, the Sanhedrin Council, the ruling council, the Supreme Court of Israel, that those guys had actually been responsible for murdering their Messiah. That puts them in jeopardy, doesn't it? When the people start thinking, hmm, what have they done? Furthermore, their lie about the, the disciples having come and stolen Jesus' body, um, that you know, nobody was really catching on to that. And people were starting to believe that Jesus' disciples' dogmatic declaration that they had seen Jesus themselves alive, and actually there were more than just the apostles, there was other, a lot of other people who had seen him alive, and that people were really beginning to believe that Jesus had resurrected, that was a great threat to these leaders, especially the two co-reigning evil high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, and the leading chief priests, because what sect were they from? The Sadducean sect, and remember the Sadducees? Don't believe in what? Resurrection. So for these common Galilean fishermen to go about, you know, trying to destroy their theology, making themselves out like, you know, who, I, they're not theologians. They didn't go to the rabbinical schools, and yet they're getting people to believe that they really saw him resurrected from the dead. So this is a problem. They're adamantly, adamantly going to deny resurrection no matter what the proof might be. I mean, we got our theology and it doesn't matter. You know, we're going to stick to it. And so there is the disruption. And let's read about it in Acts 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, And as they spake, that would be Peter and John, unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day. 
for it was now eventide. Remember, they had healed the man, uh, the lame man, at the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. And then, you know, they went over to the uh, Solomon's porch and he preached. So now the sun is starting to go down. And uh, so they grab Peter and John and also the lame man. They grab him, we know that, later on, because he's there with them as they stand at trial before the Sanhedrin court. He's with them in verse 10. So they grab all three of these guys, they put them in bonds, and they throw them into prison because it's illegal for the council to hold a trial at night after the sun goes down. Now, even though that was a fact they conveniently ignored when it came to the trial of Jesus, right? They had his trials illegally at night. And so they bind these men. The good news is that although evil men may bind Christians, they cannot bind the word of God, can they? They cannot bind the, 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 the gospel message, the word of God, the power of God's proclaimed word. So despite the disruption, the spirit of God had used Peter's message and many, look at verse 4, many of them which heard the word, what? believed. The early church, we're told in that same verse, grew to include about 5,000 men. And that is a word which excludes women and children. So if you add women and children, young people, they figure the church is now up to fifteen to 20,000 people. It's growing rapidly. So you, no wonder the religious rulers are getting nervous. Well, the next morning, the council gathers in the chamber of hewn stone, where not long before, probably just a matter of months before, they had unjustly condemned Jesus. So they're in the same building, and this is the same men. And now Peter, John, and the former lame man stand before these very same men who are planning to intimidate them by their power. I mean, these are the big mucky mucks, you know? They have all their robes and their long beards and everything, and they're going to intimidate these guys with their power and their authority. And they're going to silence their proclamation of a resurrected Jesus once and for all. We've had enough. This is it. And likely, I would say, it was probably Caiaphas. We know he was there because of verse 6. But probably Caiaphas is the one who boomed out their question. And here's their big question to Peter and John. By what power, and this is in verse 7, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And what is the this speaking of? The miracle of healing the, the lame man. Do you notice that they don't even seem to be able to, to have within them any kind of happiness for that poor guy? <laughs> I mean, don't you think they may, might have said, hey, Joe Schmo, it is wonderful to be able to see you walking and leaping and standing. That, that is just great. Same thing with the blind man, remember? I mean, they're never happy about the people who finally get healed. Instead, you know, how did you do this? But the big dare, the big dare is that they are wanting for Peter and John to speak that name. You know, they won't say that name. They still don't say that name, do they? They don't like that name. The world does not like that name. What is that name? Say it. Jesus. They don't like to say it, so they say, by what name have you done this? We're daring you to speak that name. These rulers would likely have remembered how quickly these men and the other men, you know, the other disciples of Jesus, had scattered from the scene on the night they came to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane. So surely they were thinking it would be very easy to frighten these guys. They scattered like sheep before. So it's going to be easy to frighten them into silence, or better yet, to just get them to leave. The best thing would be to get them to hightail back to Galilee, you know? Go home. Get out of here. We don't want you anymore. After all, their threat behind that question is, we can do to you what we did to our leader. So, they're trying to get these two common Galilean fishermen and one guy who just begged all his life. They're trying to get them to squirm, aren't they? However, if that is what they figured would happen, they figured really badly, didn't they? They figured totally wrong. What we find in the rest of this chapter, 
are a number of principles, and you might want to write these down, although they will be in the um, email lesson that you'll get sent, and uh, also on the question sheet I'll have all these, but if you want to write them down now, we're going to learn some principles that are for our instruction and for our application for how spirit-filled people respond to persecution. This might be important for us in the day and age that we're living in. How do spirit-filled people respond to persecution? Peter, if you look at verse 8, was filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you look at the end of the chapter in verse 31, the whole assembly of believers is filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is how spirit-filled people respond to persecution. The first principle we learn is to be submissive to it. Be submissive to it. When Peter and John were arrested... And you notice they weren't given their Miranda rights, and they weren't even told why they were being arrested. Yet, they, they did not resist at all. They were submissive to it. The Lord Jesus, remember, had not uh, resisted his arrest at Gethsemane, had he? And so, likewise, these guys, they'd learned. They'd learned from the master, neither do they resist or say something, you know, vile, like, what? What are you doing? You know, we haven't done anything wrong. They just submitted to it. They trusted the ascended Lord Jesus and the purpose that he had for their arrest. Well, the second principle um, is that spirit-filled people will use persecution as an opportunity to be bold for Christ. Peter's answer to the council as to by what power and by what name they had healed the man, was powerfully bold. Powerfully bold. In fact, he begins in verse 9. This is still review, okay? We're not in new territory yet. But he began by questioning the council. And you imagine, I mean, Peter. He's standing before 72 men in their semicircle. Powerful men. And he questions them for arresting them. But he does so very politely. First of all, he addresses them. Uh, where is it? Let's see. Examine them. Yeah, verse 8, thank you. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. See, he addresses, addresses them very politely. And then he says, If we this day be examined or tried of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. And then he goes on. So what he's doing is asking them, What is your charge? What's the charge for examining us and having arrested us? Um, was it now a new law? In Israel, that you could not do a good deed? Is that why we're arrested? <laughs> you see what he's doing here? Um, and then looking, all these guys, I can just picture Peter, looking them straight in the eyes, no longer the same frightened man who had quickly denied any association with Jesus at all when questioned by a mere maid, Right? This is a new man. This is a new Peter. He's looking these guys square in the eyes, and he tells this assembly of proud, self-righteous, merciless men that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands here before you whole. They dared him to speak that name, and boy, that was all he needed, right? He couldn't wait to speak that name. He did not water down his message. He did not cower I don't believe he was standing there. Him and John were standing there like this at all. I think they were standing up and looking them right in the face. Didn't cower. They didn't offer some kind of innocuous religious platitude that would not offend them. You know, oh, we need to be politically correct here, you know. Instead, Peter used persecution as an opportunity to present Christ to these lost men. After all, Jesus had told them, right before he had ascended, he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to who? Every creature. Every creature. And these council members are included in every creature. So Peter began to witness to them. He went beyond just answering their direct question 
by telling them it was in the name of Jesus. He goes beyond that, and he begins by trying to convict them, verse 10, of their sin, their serious grave sin. He tells them, in effect, that they had shown themselves opposed to God. Because the one they had put to death, God raised from the dead. You know, you're opposed to God when you put to death someone that God raises back to life. So you're on the opposite, you're on the wrong side, you guys, is what he's telling them. And when God raised him from the dead, that was proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be, God's son, their Messiah. Furthermore, in rejecting Jesus, Peter tells them, verse 11, that they had actually done exactly what Psalm 118.22 said. Predicted long ago, David wrote that psalm, and he said that those who should have been the builders of the house of Israel would reject the stone. And all Jews knew that the stone was a messianic title from Daniel 2. I won't get into that now, but it was predicted that the, the builders of Israel would reject the, the stone, their own Messiah. And Peter points that out to them in verse 11. Um, he says that they set him at naught. Isn't that exactly what the religious leaders did? They, they didn't consider him uh, anything, really. We just need to get rid of him. They set him at naught. But that stone, Peter says, had become the head of the corner, just like the psalm said. When did the stone become the head of the corner? When did it become the chief cornerstone? When God raised him from the dead. And now that head cornerstone was building a new thing. You know, the builders of Israel rejected him. So now he's building a new thing. And what is the new thing he is building? His church, right, his church. Well, then in verse 12, Peter, again, very, very boldly speaks of that dared name when he told these men, that there is salvation in no other name. He says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Is that pretty bold to say before that council? You better believe it. There is no hope, he tells these men, no hope. Why did it get so quiet? The air went off. Wow. (laughs) There is no hope, he's telling them, to see the kingdom of heaven other than by that name that you guys don't want to say, the name of Jesus. And basically he's saying, you know, this once lame man, he was made whole physically by that name. And you guys, you guys can be made whole spiritually by that very same name. Now that is spirit filled boldness, isn't it? In the face of persecution, no more hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews, for these guys. Why are they so changed? Why are they so changed? They had spent 40 days with the resurrected Christ. I mean, they knew for sure who he was. Well, the response to such boldness was that the council, verse 13, the council marveled that such unlearned men, meaning, you know, not educated in their rabbinical schools, and ignorant men, which means that they're, you know, just common Galilean fishermen, supposed amateurs at religious matters, they marveled that such unlearned, ignorant men were standing so firm and so sure and so unafraid to handle uh, theological disputation before the Jewish Sanhedrin court. You know, how, how can they be so brave to talk to us? We're the, we're the theologians. So they're, they're marveling. Verse 13 says, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. What a compliment. What a compliment. Wouldn't you want somebody to say to you, I notice that you have been spending time with Jesus. Peter and John were doing exactly what Jesus had done. He, too, was, in their eyes, ignorant, unlearned. He was just a Galilean carpenter. He had never been to their rabbinical schools, and yet he taught them as one having authority, didn't he? And that's exactly what Peter and John are doing. Authority, such authority. And Jesus had been proven to them that he was a master of the Old Testament scripture. 
And Peter likewise had just masterfully used Old Testament scripture, didn't he? Psalm 118. So to the chagrin of the religious rulers, Jesus, um, we know, had gone about performing miracles, many, many miracles, and they could never deny them, could they? Even when he raised Lazarus from the dead, they, they knew he had actually done it. And, and, and they were very upset about it. But now it is obvious that a very notable miracle had been for, performed in the healing of this former lame man. They couldn't deny it. Why were these apostles so much like Jesus? Why were they so much like Jesus? Well, it was because it was Jesus speaking through them and working through them. Remember the book of Acts is the continuing work of the resurrected Christ through the people of his church. It was the Lord's spirit through working through these men. They were filled with his spirit. Now, because the miracle was so evident, so obvious, the council, we are told in verse 14, could say nothing against it. They couldn't argue about it. They couldn't say, well, he's really not healed when he's standing there in front of them. They couldn't argue with it. They couldn't deny it. But they did stubbornly um, not accept the source of it. They were, and people like this abound in our world, they were face-to-face with the truth. They were face-to-face with changed men. These are the same guys that ran away so quickly in Gethsemane. They were face-to-face with a spirit-filled message that had a miracle and scripture to confirm that message. But instead of accepting it, these men, 72 of them, sat there speechless, just as had happened so many times when they tried to confront the Lord Jesus because he was so wise scripturally, and that's exactly what happens here. Um, They had no idea how to respond to what Peter had just said, and so it's kind of an embarrassing moment, you know, for them. Two Galilean fishermen and one beggar? And they, and they don't know how to respond, so you know what they do to cover their embarrassment? They send them out, they send their prisoners out of the chamber. And then they all look at each other and they say, this is in uh, verses 16 and 17, what shall we do to these men? I mean, you know, they didn't ask, what shall we think about what they just told us? No, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them, is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We're in a pickle. What are we going to do? But that it spread no further among the people. Now, what is the it? The, the message, not, not about the lame man necessarily, but more about the resurrected Christ. They say, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. They just won't say it, will they? You know, the dupes of Satan always resort to force when their other methods fail. We see that in the world today, don't we? How, How willfully blind these men were and how tragically their blindness has spelled out centuries of heartache and loss for the nation of Israel. Yet, for all of their attempts to first kill Jesus and be done with him once for all, and then to keep him in his tomb, and now to shut the mouths of his followers, they could not stop the truth from spreading, could they? Here we are, 21 centuries later, and the truth is still going forth, is it not? The truth had already taken wings and was already springing up everywhere the new believers went. And this leads us to a third principle of a spirit-filled response to persecution, which is, and this is an important one, to be obedient to God at all costs, regardless the cost. The most striking response from Peter and John came when the council returned them into the chamber and commanded, this is verse 18, commanded them not to speak at all nor teach at all 
in the name of Jesus. No more. Isn't it really, I got to think, isn't it really rather strange that the early church had to be commanded not to speak while the church today needs to be commanded to speak? I mean, how far have we drifted? Man, we need to be out there speaking. These are the last days. It's getting close. So how did the apostles answer this threatening command from Israel's Supreme Court? Well, first, they put the ball back in their court, so to speak, by telling these supposed spiritual rulers to make the judgment call for themselves. Now, this is really clever. They say, what do you think is right for us to do in the sight of God? Should we obey you guys or should we obey God? You see how they just threw that right back? What could they say to that? Again, they're silent. <laughs> what do you think is right for us to do? Obey God or should we obey men? Should we obey you? That was a real spiritual bomb. But with holy courage, their answer gets even better as they go along and bolder because they say in verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And we talked about this last time before we broke for summer. Literally in the Greek, it is, we are not able not to speak the things that we have seen and heard. In the Greek, a double negative makes a very strong positive. Right before the, the Lord Jesus ascended into the clouds and out of view, he had said to his men, these words, Acts 1.8, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, ye shall be my witnesses. That was not only a command, you shall be my witnesses, but it was a fact. A fact. You shall be my witnesses. They would be his compulsive witnesses, and this is exactly what they are telling this council. We are not able not to speak forth the things that we have been so privileged to see and to hear. You know, there's no way you can shut us up. It's impossible. We're unable to do it. They know that they are putting their lives on the line in saying that. Nonetheless, they go ahead and they stand firm. Why? Because they have a higher authority in control of their mouths and in control of their lives than this court of men. Now, somebody, somebody in here might be thinking or asking, but doesn't Romans 13 tell us that Christians are to be subject to the powers that are over us and that are ordained of God? Didn't Peter himself later on say in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 that we are sub to submit ourselves to the authority of kings and presidents and rulers and governors over us? Doesn't the scripture say that? Yes, it does. And Christians, of all people, we are to be the best citizens possible in our obedience to the laws of those in authority over us. However, when obedience to the laws of men comes into conflict with a higher command from God, that is altogether a different matter. Daniel, do you remember Daniel? Daniel was commanded by the king's edict not to pray to his God. But what did Daniel faithfully continue to do? Even open his window so everybody could see him doing it like he had his whole life. He continued to pray to Jehovah God three times a day, even though it meant that he was thrown into a den of lions. Do you think you would do that? And then those three other guys, I don't like to use their Babylonian names, but that's what most people say, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, when they were commanded by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to bow down before that statue, what did they do? They would not do it. And that, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet the Lord was there with him, was them, wasn't he? And you remember when the midwives of, um, the Hebrew midwives in Egypt were commanded to kill all the baby boys that were born, what did they do? They answered to a higher authority, didn't they? And they did not do that. Um, what if a government, now this is where it's applicable, applicable to us today, what if a government forbids the reading of the Bible? What if it gets to that point and they forbid us to read the Bible? 
Is it okay then for us to smuggle a Bible into a secret home church or get under the bed covers and read it? Is that okay or are we, you know, we're disobeying men, but we're obeying God and he is the higher authority. What if a group like ISIS invades and forbids worship to any God other than the false God Allah? What are we to do? Obey the higher authority. If anyone or any group of people comes along and commands us to do something that is clearly against the word of God, what are we to do, ladies? Obey God. Yes, obey the higher authority. It says in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men when those two come into conflict with one another. Spirit-filled people find a boldness that is not their own. You know, I, I think, you know, if it comes down to it, God gives you the grace when you need it. And that's what he did with Peter and John. They were enlarged beyond their mere human capacity. Words came to their mouths here that were not premeditated, but were given to them when they needed them. Words that made a dynamic impression on those who heard them. Words that are provided by the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said that would happen, and that's exactly what happened here. Uh, Persecution had broken out, but it did not break the persecuted. Hmm, Praise the Lord. It actually only increased their zeal as we'll see next. Now, here's where we come to today's lesson. Next, we to, you know, we're told that after Peter and John said, we can't, you know, we can't obey you. We have a higher authority. It's impossible for us not to be compulsive witnesses of what we saw and heard. Then the, the council just goes on to um, threaten them a little bit more, and uh, then they have to let them go. Because they know that everybody in Jerusalem is so excited and praising God because of this miracle, so they have no choice, and they let them go. And that's where we pick up our story in verse 23, Acts 4.23. It says, and being let go, they went, where did they go? They're their own company, you know, this is good, this is good. They went to their fellow Christians and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. They gave a full report of everything that had happened. And when they heard that, now this is the assembly of other believers, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Do you know what? The early church were creationists. They were not evolutionists. They believed God created everything. Verse 25. Now this is a quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage, that's the Gentiles, and the people, the Jews, imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, that would be the Lord God, and against his Christ, his anointed one, Jesus. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, was he a king? Yeah, the rulers and the kings are going to rise up against your anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, he was a ruler, with the Gentiles, the heathen, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. That's a great verse. All that they did to rage against God and his anointed one was all in the plan of God to begin with. Verse 29, and now, Lord... Behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal. Well, see, it wasn't their hands. It was God's hand using them to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, The place was shaken. That's what we need nowadays. Prayer that shakes the whole building. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but that they had all things in common. They were lovingly sharing with everybody. 
and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Wow. Verse 23, we learn that when Peter and John, and we assume with them the lame man, former lame man, sorry, uh, when they were released, they immediately went to their own company. They went, you know, they just gravitated toward their fellow believers, and they reported everything that had taken place since they were arrested the night before. They told the others of the entire conversation between them and the Sanhedrin council. And now here's our fourth principle regarding persecution, and it is that it drives Christians together. It drives them together. You know, out in the foyer of this church, if you'll walk down the hall a little bit, Look on the wall, you will see a framed, real picture of Christians huddled together in the cold winter. The snow all in the trees, and they're, they're in their coats, and they're all standing there with a pastor in front of them. And it's a real picture that was taken under communism of Russian believers getting together. Persecution drives Christians together. You know what? That's a good thing. Maybe it makes us forget about all the little petty issues like what's, you know, what carpet is, the color of the carpet in the bathroom or something, you know. We can just get all full of silliness, can't we? But it drives Christians together, especially um, when the persecution is extremely hostile. Um, now, besides coming together, what did the early believers do corporately when they're released brothers in Christ um, brought them the council's threatening command. I mean, it was for all of them. The council has told us that we must not teach or speak anymore in that name, the name of Jesus. What did they spontaneously do? This is important for us because this is the pattern that the church is to follow throughout the church age. What did the first century believers do when they encountered for the very first time Persecution. This is the first entrance of persecution on the church. What did they do? I've heard you say it. They prayed. It was just spontaneous. I, they lifted up their voice, singular. You know, they all just were in such one accord um, that they prayed spontaneously, lifted their voice to God. So that's the fifth principle. And this is a critical response of spirit-filled people to persecution and to the threat, even, of persecution that we pray. We need to be spending more time in our churches and with one another in prayer. Prayer. Because persecution is here. It's already here. They're trying to silence us already. And we need to have prayer that just shakes the whole building. We need to have a revival in the Church of America. The true Church of America. No matter what denomination. All born-again believers is the true church. And notice, too, how prayer was their spontaneous response. As one voice, they spoke to God, and they begin with praise of God. They praise him for his omnipotence. They praise him for being the sovereign creator, the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. They're reminding themselves of his power and of the fact that he created all people, which includes those who are persecuting them. You know, God even created those that growing army of uh, Islamic rat radicals, he created every one of them. They need to get saved. You know, we need to be countering that false theology of theirs with the truth instead of, you know, being timid about it. Um, the word that they use for Lord in verse 24 is a very unusual, you know, usually in the Greek when you see the word Lord in the New Testament, it's the Greek word kyrios, which means, you know, master. Lord, but the word they used in 24, verse 24, is despotes, which if you saw it, it looks like despot because that is where we get our word for despot. This is the first time the church has ever used this name for God in prayer. The word only appears five times in the New Testament, five other times in the New Testament. And the last time Anybody uses that word for God, despot, despotes, is found in Revelation. And it comes from the lips of saints who are already in heaven. They're under the altar in heaven. And they were slain. They were beheaded. Do you ever think we'd see that again? 
It says in Revelation 24, they were beheaded for um, the word of God and for the testimony which they held regarding Jesus Christ. And they, they're under the altar. They're already, you know, they're already in heaven, and their heads are back on. And, um, and they're saying, despot, you know, how long? How long before this is all over? This, they're, you know, they were slain during the time of the Great Tribulation. This is yet future. But that's the last time that word is used. So obviously, what this tells us is that it is a comfort for persecuted believers to remind themselves that their God, our God, is sovereign dictator of this universe. He made it. He created it. He's the one who is in control. He's running the show. He will make all things right. Those early church believers didn't cry out in fear, did they? No. They didn't say, oh God, save us from harm. Nor did they succumb to mental depression, which happens to me all the time, you know. (laughs) I turn the news on and I get depressed. Don't you? They didn't succumb. They looked to their sovereign God who knew all about what was going on. He knows everything that's going on in the world today. And he's the one who actually, you know, allows these things to happen. And we have to remember, he's sovereign. He is working it all together to fulfill his plans and purposes. Uh, After all, if Peter and John had not been arrested, thrown into prison, you know, the first persecution of the church, would they have ever had an opportunity to witness to the Sanhedrin council? No. So that persecution allowed them that wonderful opportunity. And we do know that later on, many Pharisees and and priests do get saved. We also find that these early believers took comfort in their understanding of Scripture. This is the sixth principle. In their prayer, they quote from David's inspired writing in Psalm 2. And you might want to flip over to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but David gave a, uh, under inspiration of the Spirit, he gave a condensed sweep of the ages all the way from man's rebellion against God and against his anointed one, the Christ, to the establishment of the messianic kingdom. So in that one psalm, we have all of history, basically. And the believers who are praying in Acts 4 refer to just the first two verses of that psalm, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, which speak of man's man's opposition to God, the true God, and to his son, to the Christ. David asked, why the heathen, that means the Gentiles, why the heathen rage? Why do they rage? And that word means snort. (laughs) Why do they snort? And the people, which refers to the Jews, imagine vain things. And why do the kings and the rulers of the earth gather together against the Lord God and his Christ, his anointed one? You ever ask yourself that? Why do they do that? Well, they're willfully, I mean, they they love their sin and they love their darkness. Everyone, and this had actually, this psalm is, uh, has dual fulfillment. Okay, it was fulfilled when they had Christ on the cross. Okay, and it will yet be fulfilled in the last days at the time of the second coming. But the first fulfillment, these believers recognized that everyone in fulfillment of Psalm 2, including Gentiles, Jews, kings, and rulers, had conspired together against God's anointed. They had raged against him. When did they snort against Christ? Remember when he hung on the cross and they were mocking him and reviling him and just snorting, snorting? That had already, the first fulfillment of the psalm had already occurred. <clears throat> There will be a second fulfillment, and that, of course, will happen at the end of the Battle of Armageddon in the second coming. Well, in verse 18, now you can go back to Acts 4, they acknowledge that all of the combined antagonism against God's holy child when they put him to death had only served to accomplish what God had determined before to be done. You see how everything that happens, like what's happening in the world today, is aligning with revelation and prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, to get us ready for the tribulation and everything that will happen in the last days. It's all aligning. I mean, Gog is coming alive, right? Russia and 
Oh, it's just amazing. Don't have time to get into that. But it's, it's all fulfilling his plan. After having done their very worst, God's enemies had only succeeded in accomplishing what he said would happen from the very beginning. So we need to remember that. All right, in verse 29, really quickly, the early believers turned from praise to petition. And this time in addressing the Lord, they used the common Greek word kyrios, master. And then they referred to themselves as servants. Dulos, bondservants. They are asking their master to behold the threats that are coming at them, at, at his servants. They're putting themselves in the right place, you know. You're our master. We're, we are your servants. Um, and we just want you to look at the threats. Behold the threats that are coming at us. They knew, you know, they're his servants. So anyone who touches them is touching his property, right? We need to remind ourselves of that same truth. We belong to him. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And we are his bondservants. He will take care of us one way or another, right? I mean, even if it comes to that, we'd be instantly with the Lord. And I hope it doesn't. But if someone harms God's property, you know, if somebody's threatening you, you can say, well, go ahead, I belong to God. And you're putting yourself in an awfully bad position because <laughs> the wrath on you is going to be worse. You know, I'm, not, I'm just going to be instantly in his presence. All right, notice that these spirit-filled believers merely ask the Lord to behold the threatenings. That's amazing. That's their petition. Behold the threats. They do, do not request or petition God to do anything specifically. They just say, you know, you know, you know what's going on. Um, and so... Just look at it and behold it. And why, why do you think they didn't ask him, can you protect us? Can you, you know, why didn't they ask that? Well, because spirit-filled believers who have encouraged and reminded themselves of God's sovereignty and of the fact that nothing will touch them except what he allows and what he will eventually work out together for their good and for the accomplishment of his foreordained plans, those people realize full well that the servant does not tell the master what he should do about it. Just say, look, look at my circumstances. You know, I'm in a pickle here, Lord. What are you going to do about it? That's what they're saying. You know, um, I'm sure that the people, when Jesus was arrested... We're praying. Don't you know that all the believers were praying that Jesus would not be crucified? I am sure that they were praying all night long. Oh, don't, you know, let Pilate release him. Please, Lord, let Pilate release him. But that, that was not the best, was it? That was not the game plan, right? Uh, his, his death was actually the best thing that has ever happened for them and for us. We might pray that God spares American Christians from persecution. Wouldn't that be what we want to pray? Spare us? But that might not be the best thing. I don't know. We might pray for deliverance or protection from suffering of one kind or another. But that may not be God's plan for us. So the best thing to pray in a situation of persecution, especially, is, Master, I'm your servant. Look at what they are doing to me. I don't understand your plan in all of this, but I leave the outcome in your hands. Leave your problems with the sovereign. He will take care of you. And that's what they did. The only request that they made for themselves is amazing. It's the one that got them into trouble in the first place. What did they ask for? Even greater boldness. Wow. They asked God to help them to be fearlessly outspoken about Christ. They didn't ask for an escape. They asked for a power. And at the same time, they asked him to exalt the name of his son by continuing to stretch out his hand and work the miraculous. Why? Because the apostolic miracles were what set the stage for them to then speak out more boldly about the one who was actually performing those miracles, Jesus. Let's bow in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, it is you, I have no doubt about it at all, who has led us at this time to study the book of Acts. So perhaps you are getting us ready to face some unusual pressure in this land. We're already feeling that pressure. 
And so we pray that your strength, which comes through the filling of your spirit, as we yield ourselves totally to you, that it would not only sustain us, but that it would embolden us and empower us to speak out and to speak up the name of our Savior, Jesus. Yet may we always abound with grace and truth to any who might mock us or threaten us or who even just outright reject us. We lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ around this world. You know every single one of them. And we ask, Father, that you would stretch forth your hand and magnify yourself in and through them. May the wrath of men truly praise you in such a way that people will take notice. And even the persecutors would see Jesus in his people and be drawn to him, be saved. Give us strong conviction about your divine sovereignty so that we are not frightened. For we ask these things in the name that is above all other names, the name of Jesus. Amen.